As we come to God's Word this morning, we turn to Acts chapter 9. That's where our scripture reading can be found. And so I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible and you want to uh, follow along in one of the Bibles that are in the chair racks, you can do that by pulling out that Bible. And Acts chapter 9 is on page 1167 of that Bible. Uh, this morning we turn our attention to what I think, and I, 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 don't, think that this is an, I don't think this is an overstatement, uh, we turn to an event, an occasion, a moment that is probably the most pivotal moment outside the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but the most pivotal moment in the history of the Christian church, where the trajectory of the Christian church was changed and where the influence of the Christian church by one man was felt, and that is the conversion of a man named Saul, a man known better to most of us as the Apostle Paul. And this is how it happened. It's in Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 19. Let me invite you to stand if you're able as I read this. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now do a little thought experiment with me. Who is the last person, the last person that you know who you would expect to become a follower of Jesus? It's almost a dangerous question to, to think about because it almost forces you, it, it's almost inviting you to think in stereotypical ways about what a Christian should be like, right? Or who a likely Christian would, would be. But I'm sure just by asking the question, stereotypes or no, you probably wouldn't have any trouble of someone popping into your 
head, thinking of someone you know, that you would say, you know what, no, (laughs) they're probably the last person that I would expect would become a follower of Jesus. Well, without a doubt, this guy, Saul, who we just read about, would have been at the top of the list for those people in the early Christian church. Now, this, this isn't the first time in Acts chapter 9 that we meet this guy named Saul. Just a few weeks ago, in fact, if you were with us, we read in chapter 8 that at the beginning of chapter 8, Saul was actually one of the reasons why the Christians were forced to flee from Jerusalem because a great persecution broke out there and Saul was at the center of it. Saul was leading a group of Jewish leaders who were intent on rounding up, imprisoning Christians on charges of blasphemy. And now, it seems, Saul is on his way to the Syrian city of Damascus, and it tells us in verse 2 that he had received permission from the Jewish high priest to legally remove any Christians that he found there and bring them back to Jerusalem, presumably for trial, ultimately perhaps for execution. And he's not going about it in you know, in a calm kind of a controlled way. He's pretty angry. You can tell that from the way it says in verse 1, he was breathing out threats and murder. And that's really strong language. Now, quite honestly, the last guy that you would expect to become a follower of Jesus is this guy, because not only was he, not only did he seem not to care about Christianity or about Christians, he actually hated them. He hated the followers of Jesus. He hated them so much he wanted them dead. And this guy who becomes Paul, the chief spokesperson for Christianity in the first century, this guy who wrote more of the New Testament than any other single author, this guy is the one who became a follower of Jesus. What happened? Conversion happened. That's what happened. Saul was converted. Converted. Now, that means simply that he was going one way. That word converted. You're going one way, and then your direction changes and you start going another you start going a new way. That's the basic definition of conversion. But conversion has become a little bit of a dirty word, hasn't it, in in the world these days. To say that someone should be converted, that they ought to be converted, strikes modern people the wrong way. Because we look at that and people think that sounds arrogant. How dare you say that I should be converted to your way of thinking? Sometimes people could get really really upset, really angry, just at at the suggestion that they would need to be converted to something. So maybe then, this account about Saul, maybe this gives us an opportunity to think a little bit about that. Think a little bit about conversion. What is conversion? It's an opportunity for us to to better understand it, because the elements of conversion are all here. They're all here in what we read, and they're fairly universal. And so I think we can learn a lot about Christian conversion, and there's three primary elements that we see. The first element that we see is confrontation. The second thing we see is surrender. And the third thing we see is connection. Confrontation, surrender, and connection. Now, first, let's look at confrontation. Look again at verses 3, 4, and 5. Saul is confronted by Jesus. And as we said, it's pretty dramatic. It happens in a pretty dramatic way. You've got this light. It flashes everywhere. Saul falls to the ground, and then he hears this voice calling out to him by name. Saul, Saul. Whenever in the Bible you hear the Lord or an angel call out to you and use your name twice, you should listen. It's like kids, when your parents, when they have to say say your name twice, kids, you better listen. Saul, Saul. And Saul responds by asking, who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds by saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, 
if this is the confrontation, there's two things that Saul is being confronted with here. First, he's being confronted with the historical truth of a resurrected Jesus. He's being confronted with the fact that this Jesus is standing in front of him. The second thing he's being confronted with is the reality of his own sin. Now, let's look at both of them. First, the resurrected Jesus. Did you know that the story of Saul's conversion is related three times in the book of Acts alone? Now, here's the original version of it here, told in real time in Acts chapter 9, but it comes back. Paul tells the story again twice in in the book of Acts, and he references it multiple times in his letters. Now, why? Why? Why does he have to keep coming back? Why is this incident so important? Well, see, you have to understand that one of the most serious questions in the early church was the legitimacy of this guy named Saul, right? This guy who would later be known Paul, his legitimacy as an apostle. That's because the two main qualifications to be an apostle were that you were, one, an eyewitness to the resurrection, and two, that you were personally called by Jesus. Now, that would have been true by all the others. It would have been true of Peter and John and James and all the rest because they had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry, and they had seen Jesus after he was resurrected. And Jesus had commissioned all of his disciples to tell others about him, and this was critical for their authenticity as apostles. They were the historical witnesses. Well, those things would not have been true about Saul until right now. Now, Saul encounters the risen historical Jesus. Now, okay, if we're talking about this and we're trying to make the connection to conversion universally, of course, we're not apostles, not in the same narrow sense that Paul and Peter and those guys were apostles. They were specifically called out at a specific intentional time in the life of the church to take on a particular role. But any Christian conversion does involve foundationally an encounter with the reality of Jesus. That's what Paul had to experience, Saul had to experience. That's what each of us have to experience as well, an encounter with the reality of Jesus. See, it's real easy to criticize Saul for what he was doing. There's a lot to criticize about what he was doing to Christians, but he actually thought that he was doing the right thing. You have to at least give him that. To him, Christians were blaspheming the one true God by claiming that this guy, Jesus, was God too. Get get what that means. To the the Jewish mindset, there is one God, And yeah, there are hints and stuff of the the multiple persons in the Trinity throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and stuff, but but, but to have a man claiming to be God at the same time was something that without their eyes being opened would have struck them as blasphemous, and that's exactly what Saul was thinking, right? Saul was confronted by Jesus, though, and he realizes then that his conception, his understanding about God had been wrong, and that's what Jesus does for all of us. He confronts us and our mistaken understanding of our God, and He he corrects us. Now, our 21st century gods, they're different than the misconceived notion of God that Saul had. Most of us are not orthodox monotheists like Saul was. No, we don't tend to to worship a a, a false god in that way. What we tend to worship is is success, or we tend to worship uh, intellect, or we tend to worship beauty, those kinds of things. Or perhaps, perhaps maybe we tend to worship a God who's a little bit less vain, and, you know, or, 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 or with something that seems a little less vain than beauty or success. You know, we worship gods like tolerance or, or social justice or community service. Now, none of those things necessarily in their right place and properly understood are bad. But conversion comes when Jesus enters into your picture 
into your story, confronts you on your road, and says, stop, I'm the Lord that you've been looking for all along. Your idea of God is all wrong. And that's where the objection comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very loving. What business do you have telling someone else that they need to be converted to your way of thinking? Isn't that awfully narrow? That's how the objection goes. And of course, that objection fails to account for the fact that most modern people in their own way have their own version of truth, their own version of absolute uh, truth that they commend to others that they seek to convert people to as well. In other words, we all have our, we all have our version, our understanding of the way the world ought to work. And most of the time, those people that object to Christians saying that you ought to be converted to our way of thinking are attempting to do the very same thing. Attempting to say to, to, to me, I've got a way of viewing the world, and I think that you should view the world the way I view the world. Well, I don't blame them for that. I think that's right. If that's what you think, try to convince me of it. But we all do it. Now, the objection can also be based on the fact that one can approach, and historically, religious systems throughout the world have been guilty of this at times, one can approach religious conversion in an unloving, even in a violent kind of way. But I want you to see that that is not the idea of Christian conversion from a biblical standpoint. A violent enforcement of a religious truth claim, that's what Saul was doing, but that's not what Jesus was doing. No, what Jesus is doing by pointing out that Saul's idea of God and our idea of God, by pointing out that that idea of God is all wrong, what Jesus is doing is helping us to see that our God isn't true. And if that's what Jesus is doing, then what He is doing is the most loving thing that He can possibly do. Think about this. If you have a God of your own making, a God that you created, a God that agrees with you about everything, then that God is, by definition, a fake God. It's a God of your imagination. That God's a phony. It's not a real God. It's a God that's just an echo of your own voice. It's not real. But if your God isn't real, if it isn't the true God, then it's of absolutely no help or no value to you. See, a God who can't or a God who, who wouldn't want to convert you if you're on the wrong road, you know, like on the road to Damascus, a God who would not confront you or attempt to convert you to change your direction if you're on the wrong road, that kind of God is not a good God, is not a loving God. Now, if you're not a Christian, then I admit that none of this actually proves that this Jesus is the true God in a sense, but it does prove something. My point is that this is where conversion must start. Something happened to convince this absolutely, absolutely rock-solid monotheist who believed that Jesus was a blasphemy. Something confronted him that radically changed his mind in a very quick way. And that thing was the historical resurrected Jesus. That's what Saul experienced. And you can't be a Christian unless you've been confronted by the reality of Jesus as the only true God. Now, closely correlated with this to being confronted with the historical reality of Jesus is to be confronted with our sin. Because when we're confronted by the true God, well, then we, we come pretty quickly to understand what we discussed in our, in our confession of sin this morning. That we cannot live up to the holiness and the perfection of this God that now stands in front of us. Jesus asks Saul, why do you persecute me? And this might have seemed puzzling to Saul. You? How could I persecute you? I just met you. I've never done anything to you. But Jesus is saying that any attack against his church is an attack against him. Or, in a broader theological sense, any sin against another person who is an image bearer of God is primarily 
not exclusively, but primarily, foundationally, a sin against God. David, remember King David, the ancient Israelite King David? Right? When he's confronted with his sin of adultery, with his sin of, of lying and murder, he confesses to God in Psalm 51, and he says, against you, against you only have I sinned. Now, I don't think he means by that that he didn't actually sin against Bathsheba or against Uriah or any of those kinds of things. But it does mean that in comparison, from, from, by point of comparison, his sin against God was far greater. And it's the same with us. Being confronted by Jesus means that we come to recognize our false understanding of God, that we're putting something other than the true God in, in, in God's place as the ruler of our life, and we have to understand that that dethroning of Him then becomes offensive. So one of the elements, the first element of the three of conversion is this, confrontation. Confrontation, being confronted by Jesus, by the historical reality of the true God, and being confronted by our sin. But after confrontation comes second, surrender. Surrender to Jesus. Now, I want you to note something here. Look at this. In this Damascus Road conversion experience, as sudden as this may seem, and the Damascus Road experience is often meant to kind of signify a, a dramatic, rapid conversion, and that's what happens. But as, as sudden as this may seem, Saul does not get a full explanation of everything all at once here. Jesus doesn't give him all the reasons for why he's doing what he's doing. He simply says, look at verse 6, he simply says, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. That's it. That's all he says to him. And what does Saul do? He goes. But he doesn't know where he's going. No, he doesn't. He just goes. Right? But, 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 but he, <laughs> he, doesn't know what, he doesn't know what he's supposed to do next. He doesn't have all his questions answered. No, he doesn't. Right? He has no choice. Jesus blinded him, you say. He, he just went because, because he had no choice. He couldn't see anything. He couldn't go anywhere else. He went because he had no choice. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't send Saul into the darkness and tell him nothing else for three days to punish him. He plunges Saul into the darkness because it's grace. God is removing the temptation that Saul might have to look at anything else in the meantime. The only thing that Jesus, that Saul can do <laughs> In the next three days, the only thing they can see, the last thing that he saw was the blinding light of the resurrected Jesus. That remains the image that is in Saul's mind, and that's grace. It is a lovingly forced refocusing on the true God. And so Saul just simply surrenders. He has no other choice. And that really is the only response that we can have when we're confronted with the reality of the, of the, the true Jesus when we're confronted with our rebellion against Him. The only response that we can possibly have at that point is surrender. Now, I'm not trying to pick on words here, but would you just notice that Saul does not really choose Jesus as his Lord here. Like, choosing, as if conversion were somehow like shopping at Target or on Amazon. Right? You go into Target, all the things are kind of laid out in front of you, you got options on the shelf, and you just choose the option that you that you want. But in conversion, and we see this with Saul here, it's not like that. All Saul can do is surrender. And that's what, that, that's what conversion always does. It says, okay, Jesus, you're God, I'm not, what do I do now? And that's what Saul asks, what do I do now? Can you imagine going into Target and kind of saying like, okay, I'm here, what do I do now? What do I buy now? Ask, ask, the, ask the greeter that question. I'm here. What do I do now? 
there would be nothing for them to do. But when you, ask, when you surrender to Jesus, what do I do now? Jesus has something to say, and he told Saul. Now, this is really important when we talk about conversion. You may have encountered this question before if you were talking to people about Jesus, right? Someone might say to you, okay, all right, let's just say I become a follower of Jesus. Does that mean that I have to believe, and then pick whatever issue you want, right? Does that mean that I have to believe that abortion is wrong? Does that mean that I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? Does that mean that I have to, like, I don't know, be around, hang out with, like, poor, messy people? Does it mean any of those things? And the list goes on and on. Fill in the blank. You've probably heard those questions. Now, there are answers to each of those questions. But most of the time, when we're talking to people about Jesus, we have to lovingly, it doesn't mean that we can't interact with some of those things, but we have to lovingly redirect them and say, actually, at this particular stage, foundationally, that's the wrong question. Actually, if you've truly been confronted with the reality of Jesus, if, if he's really Lord, then you're willing, you're even excited to simply do the next thing. Confident that what you don't understand will become clearer as you follow this Jesus that has now confronted you. Imagine Saul responding to the blinding light of Jesus, right? Jesus confronts him, blinding light, Saul, right? And he says, Lord, just a minute, before I go, just real quick, is this going to involve, this following you thing, is this going to involve loving Gentiles? Because, you know, I have, I have an historically rooted, socially conditioned hatred of Gentiles, and I'm just not sure that's going to work. Can we talk about that first? Right? Or if he kind of says, like, oh, just hold on a second, Lord, because, like, is this going to involve any kind of physical pain? Because you should know, I've got actually a very low tolerance for pain. I don't do pain very well. I've got a number of pre-existing medical conditions that are already issues for me. Perhaps we should discuss this a little. No. Imagine Saul saying that. How would Jesus respond? Saul, Damascus, what did I say? Go. Got it. Got it. I'm going. Jesus isn't just doing the I said so game. You know, like you do with your kids. Why should you listen? Why, why do I need to do that? Because I said so. That Jesus isn't just doing that. He's telling Saul that he'll learn more when he gets to Damascus. In other words, I'm not going to withhold the answer to some of the details, Saul. I'm just going to tell you when you need to know it. Do the next thing and you're going to know. Go to Damascus and you'll be told. That's what Jesus says. It's not wrong for him to ask the the questions necessarily. It's not wrong for Saul to have them, but my point is this. If you're struggling with Christianity, if you're asking questions, the best place to start is where Saul started, the question he asked, the question about the identity of Jesus. That's what Saul asked. Who are you, Lord? That's a perfectly valid question. That's the right question. That's the starting question. And if Jesus is indeed Lord, then the response is surrender. What do I do next? Now, what does Jesus say to do? He tells Saul to go to Damascus to connect with other Christians there. It's the third element of conversion. We're confronted by Jesus. We surrender to Jesus. Confrontation, surrender. And then connection. Specifically, connection to Jesus through his church. This is amazing here. Look at verses um, 10, 11, and 12. The Lord, and, there's, and it's every, there's every indication that this is Jesus here again, God the Son. The Lord tells this guy named Ananias to go see Saul, who's now been blind and fasting for three days now. Now, note that the Lord does not send one of the other apostles from Jerusalem. He sends a member of the local church in Damascus. And the reason is because this guy, Ananias, represents to Saul something of the community that Saul now needs to be a part of. And the response of Ananias in verses (laughs) verses 13 and 14, I think it's actually pretty understandable. 
He knows about this guy, Saul. He's heard about Saul. Saul's reputation is known. And Ananias says to God, you mean, you mean that guy? And the Lord says, yeah, that guy. That's what I mean. And Ananias goes. And then it says in verse 17, Ananias goes into the house and does some pretty amazing things. Look at this. First, he puts his hands on Saul. You know how significant that is? Right? It's an outward sign of connection to touch someone. It's a bond of fellowship. Ananias is identifying himself with Saul. And then he says to Saul, he calls him Brother Saul. Saul, the enemy, he now calls brother. That's an amazing statement. And Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit, testifying to his true conversion. And then Saul is publicly identified with the community of Jesus' followers, the community of Christians, through baptism, and he joins the church. And this is where Saul begins to learn, and he begins to grow, and he begins to serve, and it's the same thing for us. Those who are converted grow in an understanding of God when they're connected to a Christian community where they are accepted and loved, not for who they were, but for who in Jesus they now are. It's remarkable. Don't rush past this. Think about this. It's pretty challenging when you consider the implications. Derek Thomas, one of the commentators I was reading, he asks this pointed question. It's as if he kind of jumped through the page and sort of, you know, grabbed me with it. He says, are you like Ananias, ready to give your hand of welcome to those whom the Lord has converted, no matter what their past may include? Two weeks ago, two weeks ago marked the seventh anniversary of a young white man walking into an all-black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Dylan Roof and Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And he shot and he killed nine black Christians during a Wednesday evening Bible study. During the Bible study. Now, we might have our theological differences in different areas with this particular church, and, and, and that's fine. But what was absolutely humbling is how this church understood the gospel of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. In the arraignment hearings for Dylan and in numerous media interviews over and over again, you heard these remarkable statements of forgiveness offered by the families of the victims. And they encouraged him over and over again to repent of his sins and to turn his life, to surrender his life to Jesus. One of the guest presenters at our denomination's General Assembly a few weeks ago, was Rachel Den Hollander. Now, she's not a member of our denomination, but she is a member of an evangelical church, and she's an attorney, and she's a former gymnast, and she's a Christian, and she was at the forefront of exposing the systematic evil and abuse of Dr. Larry Nasser, who was the former USA Gymnastics team doctor. She was also a personal victim as a young girl of Dr. Nasser's abuse. And so when she spoke to him at his sentencing in 2018, that fact, her personal connection with Dr. Nasser, made her words even more impactful. I want to read them, some of them. She spoke for like 40 minutes. But this is, this is part of what she said. Listen to this. She said to Dr. Nasser, she said, In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you, you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry... You know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. Forgiveness comes, she says, from repentance, 
which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says that it is better for a stone to be placed around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and yet you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And then listen, and then this is what she says. She says, but should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Did you hear that? If you truly understand the the depth of what you have done, that will be crushing, but that crushing is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, she says, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none shall be found, and it will be there for you. That is one of the clearest, most articulate statements of the consequences of sin, the cost of forgiveness, and the grace of God that I have ever heard. There's a variety of different people who are listening to a message like this. Lots of different circumstances, different experiences, different perspectives. I want to speak specifically to two as we close. There are those of you among us here who carry guilt, sometimes tremendous guilt, for things that you have done. One of the things that we know, one of the consequences of living in a country and a nation where abortion has been such a part of our culture as it has been for the last 40, 50 years is the number of women who carry a weight of guilt for what they have done. The number of men who carry the guilt for asking the mother of their child to do what they have done. And statistics tell us that those women, those men, may be sitting among us here in this room. And you may have come to understand your need for forgiveness, but you don't think it's possible. You don't know how it possibly could be. Or maybe the guilt that you feel is a little bit less dramatic. Maybe you say, I haven't murdered people in cold blood. I haven't abused young people entrusted to my care. That might seem extreme to you, but you carry your own burdens. You're imprisoned by your sin, and you don't know how you can ever, ever be free. (laughs) Independence Day is what we celebrate this weekend. You don't know how, how you can ever experience the freedom that you long for. Well, like Rachel Den Hollander said, like the Apostle Paul would say over and over again, you will never work your way out. You will never be freed by working harder. But the grace of God is available to you this morning. If you are crushed by your sin this morning, surrender yourself to the one who was crushed on your behalf for the consequences of that sin. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus took the place of those who deserved to be crushed. You may, have, you may still have real consequences of your sin that you need to endure for things that you've done, but in that being crushed on the cross, what Jesus did was He paid your penalty, and that payment sets you eternally free. Now, on the other hand, there are those among us who may think ourselves to be beyond the kind of forgiveness that Dylan Roof or Larry Nasser or Saul needs. This is what I mean. In the stories I just told, and maybe this isn't true for you, but it is true for me. What character do you instinctively want to be? In those, in those cases, you want to be the forgiver or the one being forgiven? I don't know about you, but me, I, 
I want to be, I want to, I want to have the moral high ground. It wouldn't be easy to do, don't get me wrong. I understand if I had been wronged in some kind of way, but I want to have the moral high ground. I hope that I would be in that position of, of being forgiven. When it comes to Ananias and Saul, I want to be the Ananias because I hold the high ground. I hold the power, if you will, of forgiving. When it comes to Charleston, South Carolina, I want to be the forgiving church member because I hold the power. When it comes to abuse, I want to be the forgiving victim. Now, of course, I don't want to be the one that has to suffer, but in my moral pride, I want to be the honorable victim who stands on the high ground and offers forgiveness, who holds the power in his hands from a position of personal innocence. Now, please understand me. If you, if and when we're sinned against, the high ground of forgiveness is exactly where we ought to be. But this is what I want us to understand. This is what I need to understand as I look at a text like this. I will never understand the true nature of conversion until I see myself as being able to forgive only because I need and desperately need to be forgiven as well. In a very real way, I am Saul, I am Dylan, I am Larry. The reality of being confronted by your sin is to recognize that you stand before a holy God in just as much need of forgiveness as any one of those people that we've named. Saul spent three days in darkness after having been struck down by God. Jesus spent three days in the grave after being truly struck down because he took our place, because he died for our sins, because he allowed himself to be bound so that we could be free. And when we put ourselves in those roles and we recognize that our Christian conversion, our conversion is a miracle that we did not earn or deserve, when we recognize that it's a gift that has been graciously given, then and only then can we credibly go into the world and say to people with any kind of integrity, yes, you need to be converted too. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me in love be very clear. I want you to be. I want you to be converted, right? I want, not because I'm better than you, but because I too in my own way am Saul. Because I've been confronted by the reality of Jesus and I believe it to be true. Because I believe the greatest peace and joy and freedom that you'll ever experience can be found only when you surrender yourself to him. And because I want to extend my hand, welcome you into the community of Christ and be your brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for confronting us with your reality and with our sin. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to this table this morning, as we are confronted with the reality of these physical elements, we would see you at work here, reminding us of our need for the sacrifice that you have offered in Jesus. Or we pray in his name. Amen.